make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. Thank you so much for joining The Secret Not Call with Jay Tabaret. And uh, I'm Kaya Alexander. I'm delighted to have you here, um, chilling at home, sheltering in place. I am the author of these two books, in case you haven't seen them. <laughs> and uh, delighted to have my special guest here, Jay Tavare, today. Jay uh, is so awesome. I've known him for about 10 years. He's an incredible actor. And I am going to read you uh, his bio to start off with. And he and I are just going to have a little conversation and just chat about his experiences and what he would love to impart to you today. And then um, we decided that pretty quickly we want to get to the Q&A and just open it up to the conversation and let you talk to him and, you know, bring your questions because he's so experienced as an actor and a screenwriter and, uh, you know, a fitness course designer and all these wonderful experiences he has. So thank you all for being here. Um, and uh I'm going to go ahead and, and get us started by reading Mr. Jay Tavare's bio from his IMDb. Jay Tavare is a storyteller and a citizen of the world. He is of the Apache Nation people. Jay has appeared in four Oscar-winning films with some of our era's most talented and acclaimed directors and actors. His career is the natural outcome of his eclectic life experiences and the direct result of his intense focus on excellence and deep dedication to authentic characters. Jay's on-screen roles include Pathfinder in 2007 as Blackwing with Carl Urban and Clancy Brown. He was in The Missing, directed by Ron Howard as Kayate. Did I get that right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, with Kate Blanchett and Tommy Lee Jones and Cold Mountain from Anthony Mangala as swimmer, Jude Law's Cherokee half-brother and fellow Confederate Army warrior. He was also in Adaptation and he was played Matthew Osceola, is that right? Osceola, the enigmatic Seminole orchid thief opposite Meryl Streep. So I'm hoping he has a good Meryl Streep story for us today. Um, Street Fighter as Vega, the devilishly handsome and lethal Spanish ninja. Into the West, um, Steven Spielberg's miniseries opposite Carrie Russell. 
uh, and also as Chief Prairie Fire opposite. Uh, oh, you that was that was the the end of the West as Chief Prairie Fire opposite Prairie Russell. I jumped ahead. CSI Miami season finale going ballistic as Manny Ortega. So Jay also performs all of his own stunts. He's done some crazy ones, including the astounding world class twenty three story controlled free fall more than two hundred feet, uh, which was awarded an M an Emmy nomination. So he also designed and developed the Jay Tavare Academy, an online fitness program to help people of every age connect to their spiritual source and create health and well-being in their bodies. So welcome, Jay. I'm so stoked you're here with us on the Secret Thought Call. Thank you for being here. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Yeah, we have participants from all over the whole world, in the EU, in the UK, and South America, and uh, maybe even one or two from Australia who got up early for the call today. So thank you for being here. My pleasure, and thank you for that lovely uh, intro. It's always difficult to listen to your bio, but uh, yeah, I feel like I've been very fortunate. I've worked with a, a stellar group of creative people throughout my career. I uh, feel lucky, to be honest, because we all try to get to that level, but it's not always in our hand. But and storytelling is part of my culture anyway, and. I come from a, a group of people who you really didn't have written tradition. Everything was oral. So when you told a story, you listened to it and you try to remember it accurately so you could pass it on. And when you told the story, we looked at it as medicine. Why? Because within that story, first of all, you never interrupted the elders when they talk, unlike nowadays when we, and our elders speak very slow. So you have to really give them the chance to express themselves. When you ask a question, they don't go blah, blah, blah. They think about it, they digest it, then they answer. So the whole part of telling the story was you told the story, but you didn't tell him your understanding of that story. The idea was to evoke the listener or the reader to come to his or her own conclusions. And that was very important. And I feel like that's, all of you as writers, I'm sure that is a technique used. Nothing is worse than when you watch a movie within the first 10 minutes, you know the storyline. I, I know who's the killer. And I tend to do that a lot in movies. I go, honey, I, used, I was married. Whenever I used to go with my wife, within the first 15 minutes of a whodunit, I would guess the killer. And it was terrible. But, but I knew the techniques the screenwriter was using. And if you really look for it, you can see the setup, the payoff, the, the little hints. We have to really watch accurately because a lot of that goes missing in the beginning. That subtle look, that little crafty things, those are the moments you go, oh, he looks suspicious. <laughs> anyway. I'm excited so, to talk with you more about craft and where you, you know, source your energy, your incredible energy from for yeah. these types of roles. Um, I want to ask you about this, the, the spiritual perspective of your heritage in your creativity and what that means to you, because you have a really unique perspective on that. Well, I feel like in life in general, our biggest obstacle is usually a limited mindsets, because really there's nothing you can achieve. All you ladies are literally goddesses with so much power within you that that's why I refer to as sacred power. And when you tap into your sacred power, it's incredible what you can do. 
like when I try to write a story, I always try to write about things I'm passionate about. And it always helps when you actually have had some experience in what you're writing. I, I find artists who are without pain, without struggle, rarely can express those things in a story. Like if you had a nice cushy life, it's hard for you to talk about suffering or homelessness or whatever. That doesn't mean you can't. It just means you. Re- it's not from a personal perspective. It's a so, good reminder right now. We're all going to have a great wellspring to draw some draw from this year. Absolutely. So hard. And all the all the, the the losses and all the the challenges that are ahead. And, and in fact, so I always think if you refer from that personal perspective, then your story has uh, uh, something a little more special in it. I was invited uh, two years ago to be at the Sundance Directors Workshop with Robert Redford, which was a real honor because you basically get invited. You can join. And um, I was one of the 16 actors chosen to help the young directors in this intensive workshop he does up in the mountains, which is extraordinary. Really, it's like, I refer to like the Kung Fu series. He's created a a monastery, and he brings the most creative people to work with these young uh, professionals. And what I saw there was that, like, the idea was to allow for mistakes to happen. He encouraged us to push the boundaries, to make mistakes, because that's the whole point. If you're playing it safe, you're not going where you need to go. So I always, like, for me, an unexplored life is a waste of life. So whatever I've done in my life, I try to take it to my own personal limits, whatever that may be. I don't know what that is that I push myself. That's the same with you ladies. You may not know what you have within you till you're in that situation. I mean, it's often you see those moments of, uh, we talked to Kai about this, the, the flow moment, you know, the flow state is this state where you are capable of superhuman abilities. Just like the mother who watched the pram get stuck under a car, it's a true story. She was able to pick up the back of that car with one hand and pull the pram out in the middle of the chaos. She pretty much pressed 1,200 pounds in that moment, which is physically impossible for a, a woman of 120, 30 pounds. But in that moment, the brain produced dopamine, neuroadrenaline, all the things she needed just to have that superpower in that moment. So those powers are within you, both creatively too. And when you yeah, throw yourself... You're also being able to tap into those powers. I mean, and I want to actually jump into you telling us the story of the missing, because I feel like that is a place where you really tapped into your superpowers. So tell us about the missing and your experience. Yeah. Well, I noticed the question had come in that... Um, well, first of all, like, I see myself as an actor. I don't see myself as a Native American actor, necessarily. I'm just an actor, period. I happen to play Native roles, which is part of my heritage, but I play... Middle Eastern, European, South American. So, but when I got the opportunity to work with Ron Howard on The Missing, it was really a once in a lifetime opportunity. Ron Howard being an incredible master storyteller. He really is. He knows everyone's job on the set, from the writer to the the gaffer to this stunt coordinator. He literally knows how to tell that story. But what he was amazing was he gave me the opportunity to portray the Apaches in a three-dimensional way, you know, because I, I wanted to show that, you know, like when you look at old Westerns, the Indians were always the monotonic guys who never cried. They were these wooden, my people are angry. Oh, it was like 
that type of samurai portrayal, which I had grown up watching, which was so not true because I'm around the elders and whatever, and they are hilarious. They have a sarcastic, cold sense of humor. It's very cutting. So you got to be used to it because they'll throw you a curveball and you go, wow. You know, like <laughs> so I wanted to bring that into the storyline, the humor, the things. And thank God for people like Howard that brought me on the table. I remember the first time we had a table read with um, the writer uh, Kaufman and Ron, Ron Howard and uh, Brian Grazer and Tommy Lee Jones and Kate Blanchett. And I was invited with little Jenna Boyd, which was a little nine-year-old girl who's now a beautiful young lady. And I looked around the table and I put my hand up and Ron goes, what's up? I go, I feel a little inadequate. He goes, why? Because you all have this golden statue. Because <laughs> they did all When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I wondered what I was doing at the table, but I realized that he wanted an an authentic voice. And what I brought, because I study my culture and I have lots of, um, you know, stories about the Apaches, how they trained the mouthful of water. And I managed to bring that authenticity into the... uh, to the session, and then there was more moment- about that because you have the 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 script, yeah. and then you are now bringing who you are as a, a member of the Apache tribe to a script. And how did that change the script and what was ultimately portrayed? And what did Ron Howard choose to do with your character that um, was different from what was on on the page in the beginning? But I think originally he wanted me to play the Peshidin, the witch doctor, which eventually went to Eric Schweig from The Last Known Weekends. But in our meeting, I was, I was myself, and he noticed, he said later, this goodness about me, he said. And he, he thought I would be better playing the heroic character. He felt that was more challenging because everybody in that movie, the, the natives were actually kind of evil. Mm. They were group of American scouts who had run away from the, uh, the prison and they were now like, it was, the, the, it was based on a book called The Last Ride. And it was the idea was these guys were just on one last ride trying to give a finger to the U.S. cavalry saying, we're going to do whatever we like. You can't stop us. And they were kidnapping young girls throughout uh, Southwest, taking them to the Mexico for sale. That was the, basically the storyline. And myself and my son join in with Tommy Lee Jones and Kate Blanchett to stop them. That was like the premise. But he's, my challenge was to try to be authentic and real. But also he said, the, you two are the good people and you have to balance all the evil they're going to bring. So, and I remember there was a scene where Tommy Lee Jones were supposed to be painted before he comes in to, the, to negotiate for the girls. And as I was reading this, I knew this was wrong. And I had to really struggle, but I put my hand up and Ron stopped the session. He goes, what is it? I said, that just can't happen. And he goes, what just can't happen? I said, he can wear war paint and go into the, the Apache tribe. He goes, why? He goes, because they were killing him. He's like, he's, he's projecting what he's doing. He's wearing a war paint. He's coming to battle. 
He's not coming to negotiate. Because, oh. but on, he, there was a line in there because the, the, and he didn't want to lose the line. And this is getting back to the writers where you can't let go of your darlings, those moments you don't want to let go. The line in the, 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 line in the script was no amount of um, paint or moccasins is going to make you an Indian. So he didn't want to let go of that beautiful line. And he, since he wanted to have the painting, and I said, well, it just won't work. He said, well, what can we do? And I said, well, before an Indian would go on a, a battle or a hunting trip, whatever, they would smudge, which would be sage. You smudge, you said a prayer, you, you kind of smudge yourself. And I was a form of protection. And, I, and he goes, well, and I said, maybe you can change the line to no amount of smudging or smoke and moccasins can make you an Indian. And that ended up in the movie. So... I feel responsible as someone who has the knowledge to bring those accuracies to the writers, to the directors. And I feel like when they're big enough personality, they accept it. Nowadays, the good directors and writers for sure will accept it because they want authenticity. We want to get away from what Hollywood has done, which is stereotype people for generations. And not just Indians, everyone, Asians, you name it, Italians. All Italians are mobsters. All blacks are... Thieves, all Hispanics are say they're all gangsters, you know. We have these stereotypes we do, but the reality is we are, you know, we have knaves, I mean doctors, engineers too. They have other people among us. So that was that was like an important factor. So that's that's where you come into play where you when you have the opportunity as writers, first of all, you do your research as best as you can. If you can get hold of a tribal member to get your information, that would help. But I know it's not easy because often they don't share uh, randomly information. I had a similar issue on Cold Mountain with um, Anthony Minghella because originally th that script opened up with me teaching Jude Law a Cherokee curse. Now, when I met Minghella, he said to me he could not find anybody to interpret this curse because it was in conjuring, and in Cherokee tradition, conjuring was considered evil, and they, nobody would help him. So I, before I even got cast, I went and found uh, a professor by the name of, um, I can't remember his name now, anyway, I think his name was Hartu, and he was a Cherokee professor of language, and once I explained to him what I wanted to do, and it was really, for a big movie, I couldn't give you the name, I said, but if he ends up in the movie, you'll get the credit. I'll make sure of that. I can't even promise you. So I got this curse. I interpreted it in Cherokee. I even learned it. And we did it. But unfortunately, it never ended up in the final cut because they do this audience, audience participation thing. And Minghella literally showed the movie and stopped the movie after five minutes and said to the audience, what's going on? And very few people were focused enough to say what was going on. And based on that, they took it out, which is a heartbreak. And now the movie opens up with Nicole Kidman saying, come back to me, come back to me. <laughs> so and it, it was been a curse. Opening. It would have been that, that curse would have been there at the VO at the beginning. The curse was, it, it was Don't a very dark curse. Don't say it to me. Don't look me in the eyes. No, no, no. It has to be said <laughs> and you have to look at someone when you say it. That's why even in the movie, when I was doing it, I never looked at Jude. I actually had Jude sit on the side and I was saying it to a stick. But you want to hear a funny story, which I know you like it? Yeah, I love funny stories. For the first two times we tried to shoot that scene, it was the middle of July, August in Romania. And if you don't know, Romania is very close to the equator. So it was 114 degrees, which I didn't know that. We're in wool suits. 
We're in a trench. It was like hell on Wait, Earth. You filmed this movie in Romania? Yes. Cold Mountain was that. shot seven months in Romania, a few weeks in uh, North Carolina, um, just for authenticity. But okay. they could not find a place. By the way, Romania had a range of mountains which looked exactly like the Smoky Mountains. Exactly. That's why they chose the place. And they were able to build Cold Mountain City in the middle of the mountains, cutting down 100-year-old trees, which would have never been allowed in North Carolina. But the rule was whatever they did, they just return it back to the way it was when they finished. I mean, they literally found this location by helicopter, turned it into a town called Mountain Town, and then when they finished, they planted the trees, leveled everything. It was a true story. The only thing was left was Nicole Kidman's house, which they actually sold because... So Our designer was Dante Freddy, and if you look this guy up, he's a multi-Oscar winner. He did Gangs of New York. He's done so many movies, English Patient, you name it. He's like multi-Oscar winner. And what he's known for, he brings his crew from Italy, and he literally builds the real thing. He doesn't create sets. He builds it for real. Like when we fought in the Battle of Petersburg, which was the opening sequence, the battle sequence was literally... First, they build it to scale. Then Mingala looks through the lens and goes, they're sitting too close to each other. No one's going to believe the battle was that close, which is the truth. Mm-hmm. They were sitting like a few hundred feet from each other in trenches, and they would start the war at 9 a.m. and close the war at 6 p.m. It was like work time. They would clock in, clock out, and then eat, cook. Next morning, let's get up and kill each other. And they were doing that for years, three, four years in these trenches. So just the thought of what these kids went through was shocking. And um, I'm going to stop there. Otherwise, I'll go on. Yeah, no, it's so fascinating. I can listen to you talk forever. I I want to, um, I'm split on my next question because one, I'm dying to hear you talk about working with Meryl Streep. So we have to get to that. And then two, I really want to hear your advice for for women screenwriters especially. Um, We have women on the call for whom they've been working in the industry for a while. We have women on the call for whom they're relatively new to the industry, but most most everybody here has at least won some kind of accomplishment uh, or has a rep or something like that. Um, And I'm just curious what you have to share for for women. We're so underrepresented, you know, at every level. I 100% agree. I, I come from a culture that's matriarch, so women are in charge, and I wish more of the world would listen up, because if you had a woman president now, I promise you we would not have some of the issues we have right now. But that's another question. And um, <laughs> I've worked with women writers and directors, and I'll be honest with you, sometimes I prefer them, because they bring a sensibility to the roles, they bring more of an emotional touch into the writing, which sometimes, not all men, but a lot of male directors or writers might miss, you know? And I mean, I just watched a a brilliant movie called um, Queen and Slim, written by a female uh, screenwriter, African-American. In fact, it was all African-American team, written, produced, directed, acted, was all black presentation. But um, you can see it was a woman writer. Even before I finished it, I had a look. I said, I bet you a woman wrote this because it just, had that moments in there that just a man might miss it using his testosterone-driven brain. But um, so 
I think it's absolutely necessary for women to have a voice in Hollywood. I mean, it's a crying shame we don't have more of them. And I know in the past, there was almost like a, a boys club and it would stop them, you know, like people like Mimi Leader, who for me, I was watching her movies years ago doing, uh, you know, these powerful emotional movies like Deep Impact came out the same time as Armageddon, which was the Michael Bay version of the meat asteroid movie. Yeah, which and is Scott Arkenauer was on our last Secret Knock call, and he was the um, line producer and EP on, on Armageddon. And if you watch those two movies, and that's a good example, I, I tell everyone to watch those two movies because one is written, directed by a woman, and the other one is Michael Bay, who I know. And nothing is Michael, but her story is just different. And it's the same story. And it's, it's interesting to see how the, both of them told a similar story about an asteroid coming and is a, a, a end of the world type of scenario. So, yes, I mean, look, this morning, someone asked me to show this to you guys. This morning I found um, a lot of my images are online. And, um, and, um, and like, let me see, where's the camera? Yeah, yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Just back so it up. Take like an this image. Take it an inch backwards. Oh yeah. There you go. yeah. If, if you if you read it right at the end, it, it says it's a prayer, and it ends by saying, um, you know, oh great spirit who made all of us, whatever. It goes um, all races, but look kindly upon the whole human family. But it ends by saying, which separate us from our brothers. See, now that's wrong. It should be brothers and sisters. And I find that a lot in a male-driven society that even the word mankind is not right anymore because it's humankind. And, and it's, it's brothers and sisters. It's always, if you notice, the terminology is always one side, and we need to change that. Oh, yeah, if and we I get started on talking about the goddess, that's a, such a huge passion of mine because she was totally written out of the Bible and the history books, and largely all over the world, it was Pachamama, Mother Earth, you know, the goddess, yeah. like the, the absolute center point of the homes in so many places in the world, and, you know, now it's God the Father, but, like, that's a whole other thing that I could dive down for a long time. And the word women in many native languages literally means life giver life giver that's how important you were to a tribal thing and when a when a woman had their first cycle they literally celebrated the entire tribe would come out and they would celebrate her moon cycle because now she was a, an adult and someone who could bear a child so she was that much more important to the tribal um, community and therefore it was celebrated unlike the western world where it's a shameful thing and it's hidden away and you're made to feel somehow it's something not natural for them. It was a moment of celebration and they looked at it as a form of cleansing anyway. It's your body. You're the only creature on the planet that cleanses his own blood once a month. There's no other creature can claim that. Remember that. The only creature on the entire planet that does that. Think about another one. If you think about another creature, I don't think of another creature. There's only, that's how advanced the female, the human race is. It would be You're really truly the closest to, to God. Huh? So it would, be, it would be different for Western society to view that as sacred. We'll it get there. Not, not part of the conversation. It's only a matter of time. You know, the, the caveman. There's so much territory for us as women. 
I was just gonna say there's so much for us as women writers to talk about that have that hasn't really been portrayed. What do you see like that hasn't been portrayed of Native Americans or really of any story that hasn't made its way to the screen? There's a lot. There's a lot. I mean, even among the Apaches, there's the story of Lozen, who was a female warrior. I love her. Wrote, I love her. Yeah. Lozen rode with Geronimo, fought alongside the men, would shoot. She was one of the sharpest shooters. She was a badass, for the lack of a better word, but she really was. She was and the visionary, right? She was the one who had the vision of where the enemy was and when they were coming, and she was a midwife. And yeah, like without her, Geronimo had, had no, had no, she, he was her, she was her, his secret weapon, basically. Yeah. yeah, amazing. Where, story. where is that story? You know, why? How come the, the, even the Apaches haven't told that story? So there's those. Those are the things you got to dig up these characters throughout history. And look, the first prophet who brought the the concept of monotheism was a female, Mitra. It was a Persian prophet, Mitra. If you look her up in history, thousands of years before Judaism, Islam, all of them, she talked about the one God. When the whole world. Even the Jewish religion, if you look at the books, the first word in Torah is Elohim, which means gods, plural. The idea of one God came in later. So that's fascinating. I find that fascinating. So, was so fascinating. I, I love the story of Lozen. I felt so... Uh, I was shocked to see, I mean, I've, oh, this is a super deep passion of mine, is how women were written out of the history books. I mean, growing up, all in America and Los Angeles, all I saw was like, you know, four women, maybe it was like the one token black woman was always Harriet Tubman. And then there was, you know, Joan of Arc and Eleanor Roosevelt and maybe like one or two more. And it was like history was so dominated by the men and the, and the white men in these texts. And the message that that conveys to uh, all of us, in it, it's so subtle because it's nuanced of like, well, you, you're not here, so your contribution doesn't matter. I mean, I actually had a third grade teacher. I asked about it in third grade. I was like, where are the women? She goes, oh, they were too busy making babies to contribute to history. That was her no. answer in the third grade. She's totally wrong. Like, she just hadn't totally. researched or known. Oh, well, they were these amazing women, like Hypatia of Alexandria and, you know, so many down the line of, you know, the Trung sisters out of Vietnam. Like, no, no, unless you're Vietnamese, you haven't heard of these powerful warriors. And yeah. I, I, I feel like there's a lot of these incredible stories to be told. But look, even what you just said is history. What happened to her story? I mean, it's like... It's 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 so evident. It's even in the writing. They named it history because he wrote it. What happened to her story? <laughs> it's like, anyway, I really believe. I really believe we're at that moment in history, and that's why, as terrible as this moment is, as painful as it is, it's. I look at it as like when when the the lava trying to break through its case to become a butterfly, it struggles. You know. And that struggle is necessary. And right now we've gone through that struggle because we're going to break through that shell. We're going to break through that and become the people we were meant to become. I really believe that. And that's why you see what you see. It's like, you know, this, this virus basically released all the pus that was beneath the surface. It was already festering. So this, this virus just poked it and it all came flowing out. 
True. You know, I mean, it's all over the world. It's not just here. In London, they're burning, breaking statues and stuff. So it's it's a time of change. Okay, I'm jump back to the goddess really fast because we can't skip over Meryl Streep. I've got to hear about Meryl Streep and the Orchid Hunter and what was, you know, that whole unfolding. Yeah. Tell us, please, about it. Well, getting back to the question I was answering before that I got off track was that, yes, portraying Kaete was really symbolic for me, playing my an Apache and making it real, but the most symbolic role I think I've ever done in my career was to be with Meryl Streep on screen. Was and this the role that you did where you like went into the audition and you were like yes. really dirty and your agent was like, what yeah. are you doing? Yeah, that's so crazy. It Tell was, us about that. Well, I mean, the project was kind of secret, so nobody knew what they were auditioning for for a while, but I auditioned several times. But the on the final day, the movie had started filming and I was called and they said, you need to go on the set to meet Spike Jones. And um, and I was like, then when I realized what it was, and I realized they were doing is it's with Meryl Streep on it. So when I arrived there, I knew I was reading for an orchid hunter, and I'd watched Spikes. That's another thing. I always do research on people I'm going to meet, so I know who I'm meeting, what they've done, and I had watched. Um, so smart. Uh, so smart. I'd watched uh, uh, the, the movie had done before uh, being John Malkovich, and I witnessed what he did to Cameron Diaz, who was one of the most attractive women. He had made it like fuzzy hair, toothless, whatever, and I realized his movies are not about attractive, gorgeous people. Glamour was not an issue. I realized this guy makes movies about real people, and I'm an orchid hunter in a, in the swamps of Fakahachi, <laughs> funny name, but in, in southern Florida, and... Um, and I realized this, and I had long hair, so I went in, I put dirt in my hair, I yellowed in my teeth, I looked as disheveled as I could. And I remember after I had done the audition, it was an odd audition because he kept me for half hour, and while I was reading, he would come in with his telephone and go like this in my face, do all kinds of weird shit just to see my concentration. And I came out, I had no idea what I'd done. I thought, this, this guy's nuts. Because he would say, now say it like a five-year-old. Now say it like you're on drugs. Now say it. I was like, what the hell? I mean, it's, I came out, I didn't know what I'd done. But I knew I'd look, and the other guy, the other guy was waiting. I know him, Native. He's a real glamorous Native American actor, David Midthunder, with long hair, nice body. He'd come in looking glamorous. His belt, his chest out. So I thought, it's either me or him. So I've gone for this look. He's gone for that look. Let's see which one is right. So I came back after this and I met my agent who was at CAA at the time. And she looked at me. She goes, tell me you didn't go in like that. I said, yes, I did. She goes, you didn't get this job. I can tell you this right now. So what are you talking about? He goes, you look like shit. I said, that's the whole point. The guy is in the swamps. He's supposed to look like shit. (laughs) She goes, you're not job. She said, it was absolutely crazy. Because you get one shot at this and you've probably blown it. So when I got the role, you can imagine how sorry she was. <laughs> but the point is, sometimes you have to make choices. And if you research the people you're going to meet, it always gives you the advantage. Like wow. when I'm going in to have a meeting with even producers or executives at this, when I'm going to pitch my script, believe you me, I know their son's names. Because if I get an opportunity to talk about something, I'm going to get that moment in there. So, oh, by the way, your son, Joey, is like me. He likes kiting. You know, he likes, I've 
will get that moment in there because that will make that connection. You know, I've, I've had friends who were producers, so I know when they sit in their office, they have five meetings in a row listening to people who come in to pitch their scripts. What makes your script stand out? Another thing you should think about is find out what these companies are looking for. That's what I used to do. Like I once wrote a script about the pyramids of Egypt, but I knew there were several companies who was looking for that type of Stargate movies. So I approached them first because I knew they were looking for this type of material. I could always tweak it, whatever for them. So the more, you know, knowledge is power. So try to gain all that knowledge. And in our business, networking is vital. You need to network whenever you can to meet people and maintain those relationships because you never know when it will come up. And I always suggest for writers, get to know the assistant to the producers and the director. Because those are the people you're going to be talking to. If you get the assistant, take the assistant for lunch. Meet the assistant. Communicate with the assistant. Because that's the person who's going to read your script. And if they say yay, he might read it. But they, it will, the buck will stop there if you don't get that assistant. Assistant does everything nowadays, just about. So you got to get that person as your ally if you want to get to the next stage. So I'm sure all of you have done that because you've sold projects, but those are the, the things I remember from my when I wanted to get in, that networking, that little connection added that extra gear. That's really helpful. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, I know for sure in my own career getting in to talk with people who are of higher status, who are the, you know, can green light you or can say yes to your project, making that personal connection. I feel like if I can make somebody laugh uh, or talk to them about what something that matters to them and just let them talk and share. People love to talk about what they're interested in. And that's a, a lot of us feel like, Oh, I got a pitch and I got to say the thing that's, you know, going to make my thing happen. And you're right where it's really about like making that connection so that somebody goes, Oh, I, I love their energy. I love their passion. I love their vitality. And I feel like, you know, our, our relationship will bring this project to life. I want to, I want to jump to a question from Kaylin McCarthy and then I'm going to open it up to the Q and a. Um, I will come back and answer your question on Meryl Street because better. I did <laughs> We're not getting off this call until you tell me, because I'm wondering if you were starstruck or if you just dove into that, because I, I think I would have been totally starstruck. You want to talk about her for a minute, and then I'll go oh, well, I'll yeah, find no, her first, and I'll unmute her. The first day I was on the set, I was petrified. I was absolutely petrified. It was the first time in my life I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to blow my lines, and I'm going to look like such a fool in front of the greatest living actor of our time. I mean, those thoughts just go through your head. And I was just like, I realized I was out psyching myself. And then while I was going through all of that, from the corner of my eyes, I saw Meryl Streep walking towards me. And I was like, oh, here she comes. And so she kind of very casually was like, hi, I'm Meryl. And then she goes, come here. And she opened up a Blackberry at the time and said, look, these are my daughters in Connecticut and... I want to show you. And she just totally broke the ice on this young actor who was trying to work with her. And within five minutes, had me laughing and at comfortable. And I realized I was really working with a, 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 an incredible soul because she knew I was nervous. She knew what I must be going through because she knows what she brings with her to the set. Now, the funny part was I did the scene, that first scene, which was the orchid scene where I played with their hair. That was the first scene we shot. And it was a very complicated scene because basically what we were saying 
was not what we were playing. So that's one of those scenes where you say something and you're acting something else and it requires a whole different level of thing. And for her, it was a walk in the park. But for me, it was a different thing, you know? And I was supposed to also be on, a, on this posh because within the storyline, we take this ghost orchid and we crush it, we snort it, and it opens up our consciousness. Supposedly, I was able to see right through to her heart. That's why I say I see your sadness because she's going through a midlife crisis. She's got a broken marriage. There's all that going on. But in the, there was a longer version of the movie that had other scenes with her with me. But that was the first scene. And I remember I finished the scene and I was so excited that I did not blow my line. In fact, Meryl Streep had blown her line before me. And I went to lunch and Chris Cooper, who won the Oscar, the Golden Globes, the SAG Awards, and every other award for that portrayal of La Roche, was in full makeup. I had not seen Chris yet. It was first day. He was in wig, was toothless. So I'm piling food on my plate. I look across and I see this toothless guy. He goes, hey, kid, I heard you were good. And I thought, who's this gaffer? He's like a weird-looking gaffer talking to me. Like, uh, and I was like, <laughs> yeah, I, I thought, who's this guy? You know, like he's talking like... Like, who is he? How did he see me act or whatever? You know, and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, no. I, I, and then I looked at him, I went, I went, Chris? He goes, yeah. I was like, oh my God, I'm sorry. I thought you were some gaffer or something. So he goes, he goes, don't worry, kid. He goes, my wife just went up to Meryl Street because it was great to see Chris got over his fear of working with you. <laughs> so when he said that, I realized I wasn't the only one. Here's Chris Cooper, petrified of working across with her. So. He really helped me with that as well. I realized well, it's just normal. She just brings that kind of a vibe, but she's exactly opposite what everyone thinks. She was purely organic. She was not this technical actress. She didn't repeat herself every take. In fact, every single take, she was able to hit the same points in a different way. I have never seen someone with that type of a power. Literally, she could... And what I noticed her techniques was she would like do things that most actors don't think about. Like in the middle of a sentence, she would stop and take a breath. And then she would talk. Or she would just put a moment of, <laughs> like those things that are natural to us, but an actor doesn't think about it, but she was able to do it naturally when she was saying the dialogue. And it really, what makes her so much more than just an actor. She had that special, and I'm telling you, I told her. She's a goddess. I worked, I worked with her one on one for one week, and I was never the same after that. Never the same. Because my next movie was called Mountain with Jude Law, Nicole Kidman, all of them. I had no fear. Then I worked on Missing with Kate Blanchett, Tommy Lee Jones. It was like, once I worked with Meryl, it was like, hey, I've just boxed with Mike Tyson. I can handle anybody. It's amazing when you focus your mind that at every turn, whenever you get stuck, whenever there's a blockage, something will come up because your mind is focused on it. Just like if I said to you, stand on the street, look for blue cars. And after 10 minutes, I say, how many blue cars you've seen? You will tell me the exact number. But if I said to you, how many red cars you've seen? You'll have no clue because you've been looking for blue cars. And that's how you look at when you focus your mind on your script. If you really put all everything in there, I feel like, you know, find yourself the right advisor. Go, if you're writing about, let's say, tribal people, go find the actual tribe. See if you can find one of their elders, one of their medicine men, one of their respected people to work with you. 
show them that you're, you're, you're genuine, that they're going to make money too, potentially, if you make money, and that it's going to be, you want to tell the right story. And that's really the right approach. If you don't know it, learn. Bring people who can help you. It's, it's like, do what you do best, and then delegate the stuff you don't to people who are experts. Bring them in, and they will add value and accuracy. But forget that nonsense. If you're white, you can't write about black or Indian. Or if you're black, you shouldn't write about white or whatever. That's, I don't agree with that. Storytelling is storytelling. If you have a passion, a sensibility for it, that's the story that moves you, then you're going to tell it. Some of the greatest films that are made, ever made were rejected when they pitched them. People thought it was absolute nonsense, you know? And, and yet they went to either win Oscars or make gazillion dollars. So... Dirty Dancing was one. Die Hard was one. Speed. Speed is a perfect example. No one wanted to be in that movie. Can you believe it? Nobody wanted to be in that movie. Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock were like literally last choice. <laughs> Nobody wanted to do the movie. So anyway, that's a different question. But... Um, in fact, Jason Patrick was supposed to, that was offered to Jason Patrick mm -hmm. and he turned it down, which is so ironic. Then years later, he made number two because they paid him five million for it and it was a huge flop. So his career never became what it should have been. And he was a great actor, but Keanu Reeves went to become what he is now. But it's so mm -hmm. ironic, the two careers, when many people thought Jason Patrick had all the, the talent and the skill and Keanu was just a pretty face. But you see how life is? So I would say the first thing is self-confidence. If you really believe there's something you want to tell, don't let anybody deter you from that. Because that's your story. It's in your blood. You want to tell that story. And then what I say to you is the story is one thing. When you write it, it's the first step in, in manifesting that story. But you have to remember the execution of that screenplay has a lot to do, as important as the guy who edits it. So there's the three stages. I would say for it, all the writers, you should consider learning, directing, and editing as well to some extent, because it makes you understand how to write more effectively. Because a novelist can put whatever they like in a novel. It can be 500 pages of descriptive. You can describe the weather, the day, the way she feels, the way she plays with her hair. In a movie, you can't do that. You have to show it. How do you show it? How do you show it in 105 pages, especially if you've adapted it from a book, which is even harder, or how do you bring those moments? So then you have to really think about moments that move your story forward. And often I find those moments have to have conflict in it. You can't just have a la-di-da-di scene. The looking at the weather is beautiful. You can, those are your glamour shots. But really every scene that moves the story forward is when there's conflict or something between two characters that the audience watching is going to learn or re receive something and it take him to the next moment in the story. So I think it's like believing in your story, keep developing it. I always say to screenwriters, you never finish a script, you abandon it. So there's a moment you just abandon it. You say, okay, I'll put two years in this, now I'm going to show it. Because remember, even when you think you finish, you meet the production house, they're going to put their inputs. That script, by the time it gets greenlit and is a lock script for uh, a shoot, might be a, quite a journey still, you know? And even when you're ready to shoot, I've been on the set when I see that the script yet changes again. When you're on the set, there's an organic thing that happens. And, you know, I had a lot of dialogue in Apache with Tommy Lee Jones in The Missing. 
but I realized it was unnecessary. It was boring for the audience to listen to long sentences in Cherokee. Me saying Benagunsi Yanish Nishtinet in the Napaanda Silera, and then people reading this crap. So that was one of my first suggestions: that let's keep it short and let's keep it funny, because nothing is worse than reading boring subtitles. You know, like make it funny at least, and that's why we started joking about Tom Lee Jones saying, "Hey, you still go up north and see that fat Zuni girl?" And I go, "No, no, no, no." She started to like me too much, and so we started out have like little banter, like two football buddies, and that was our suggestion. And by the way, none of that was in the script at the table read. None of it. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I came to the table to read, none of the patchy was even written yet. So I was kind of like a silent character. And I was like, "Oh, no, another movie where I'm going to read it." you know, in the background or whatever. And then Ron said, no, we're going to write all the stuff. And that's where we started to um, create those scenes. So for me, everything starts with my mindset. My whole life, I was like, you know, I've been on my own since I was in my single digit. Before I was even 10 years old, I was in a boarding school. So I wasn't really raised around parents. I didn't have this support system. So what I learned was to rely on my instinct and my, that inner voice which, by the way, it's really real. You know, now science has proved that in your stomach, you actually have the same cells that you have in your brain that have the ability to think. There's an actual awareness, consciousness in your gut. Hence, they say, oh, my gut feeling, where it really thinks. It's not just the old wife's tale. It really, your gut has a sense of consciousness. It understands, it senses danger. In the distant past, our ancestors used it a lot more often than we do. But when you get that gut feeling and women's intuition is stronger than men, you get, you got to listen to that. There's a reason. It's, it's thought of something. It's sensing something. So we need to become more sensitive to those vibes, to those things. And I believe it all comes again with the mindset. Because once your mindset is clear, answers will just pop up for you. You know, if you put intentions, look at this, there's that test. I'll answer you simply. There's that famous test of the, uh, if you go online and Google it, you see the video of it. It's a, it's a simple test where they fire electrons through two slits and they see the pattern it creates on the back wall. And the funny thing is the moment they introduce a camera to see what's happening, that pattern changes. So what they've learned from this, which is shocking, is that the very act of observation, the very act of intention changes the outcome. Mm. So you must remember that. Instead of going from a point of doubt, first be clear what you want to do once you set your mind into motion, because that's what I say every morning to myself. By will alone, I set my mind into motion. By will alone, you must will it. Will what you want to do. Create the world you see. Manifest it. Don't wait, don't hesitate, and don't let anyone tell you what you can or cannot do. You define who you are, not other people. And let your actions define you, not your words. So do it. You'll be surprised if you just do like what I say about people, fitness. People say, how you stay in shape all your life? I go, it's like brushing your teeth. If you wait and brush your teeth for two hours each month, you're going to be in a terrible dental situation. But if you brush it, for two minutes each day, then you get success. So it's that repetition of the healthy behavior, repetition of things that you know will work for you. Like if you're more creative in the morning, get up, put everything aside, 
do your creative, what I call force creation. That's how I wrote my first script. I wrote a book. I read a, I read a book called Write a Screenplay in 21 Days. I go, hey, that sounds good. <laughs> and part of it was to sit down and force yourself to, to write, re, sorry, write three to five pages a day. That's what I learned from that book. You know what? It was a great lesson because some days you don't want to write, but I forced myself. You sit your ass down, take a hit of your joint, whatever it takes. Get creative. Drink your whiskey. I don't care. Get in the mood. Make yourself want to be creative. And then when you're sober, make sure the stuff you wrote was good. Otherwise, forget it. <laughs> so I guess when, when we're buzzed, we believe everything is wonderful. But anyway. But okay, I just, if only you could be more motivational. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I use music. I, I, had a whole, I have a whole collection of movie scores. Just the soundtrack, no words. And when I want to write a scene, I think of the mood of the scene. And so I pick a song from a, from a movie and I put that on and that creates, like Braveheart used to do something to me. So I used to play that James Horner track or Passion of Christ was a beautiful score. Movies that moved me. And I would pick a track and then I would play that while I wrote that scene because that created the mood of the scene I wanted. It created the tempo, the scene, how I wanted it. So whatever technique you can create yourself to actually get them, because remember, when you watch a movie, those music is in the background. That music enhances what you see. So if you want to bring the emotion into the scene, think of those emotions. I'm sure you do. And, uh, and the, the music really helps me. That's one of the techniques I use. I love that. That is such an awesome share. Thank you so much, Jay. We're, we're, we're so honored to have you here with us. And thank you so much. Well, you know, it's so funny. In about in the 1990s, I had an absolute fascination with esoteric knowledge that was coming out of like Egypt, and uh, I had heavily studied Edgar Cayce's prophecies, and I was big time into that stuff, UFOs, all of that stuff. And when I wrote my first script, it was just basically out of I was always a good storyteller, but I. I couldn't type. And my wife at the time was a court reporter. She was, could type 200 words a minute. <laughs> so she forced me to sit down at a computer and do the Mavis program. <laughs> she was so good. Like literally forced me. And after a few months, I learned to type about 40 words a minute, which wasn't bad. So I thought, okay, now I can type. So I sat down. I, I had a double closet. I emptied the closet. I put a table in there. I used the technique that I used when I was at school. I went to a British boarding school, funny enough. And um, in, in British boarding schools, we had a den. All of us had a den. It was like a little space with curtains, and we could stick whatever we wanted, and a desk. And after school, that's where we did our homework. So I created that type of a thing about my story. I had my computer in there. I took pictures of the actors that I had in mind. I stuck in there. I... You know, did everything that book had told me as well. And just every morning I would get up, I would put myself in that den, I would play the song and I would just start writing. And I would try to do three, five pages. If I could write more, I would write more. But it was just out of passion. That's why I said, before you start, get that passion first. Get that fire in your belly because that's what's going to keep you going. Like most people say, how do I stay in shape? I say, well, you got to get excited about being in shape. You can't stay in shape if you're just going to go, average person goes to the gym for six weeks a year. Why? 
because we can't be consistent. And we're not consistent because human nature shuns away from difficulties and painful stuff and always goes towards fun and joy and comfort. But the irony in life is all our answers are in the painful things. All our answers are in the difficulties of life. And if you have an easy life, you're going to learn nothing. You know, a, a, a good sailor was never found in a calm sea. He went through storms to become a good sailor. And that's, that's what I say, you know, like challenge yourself. First, get passionate. Do your research. Get your stuff before you even write the first page. Get everything ready for that, for your creative thing. So then when you sit, there's um, several hours a day that you can really create about the subject matter and just write your first draft. Don't worry about it. Knock out that first draft. There's going to be a lot of nonsense. Sometimes I didn't know what in the scene would happen. I would just have a conversation in gibberish. That has to go there. Okay, put that scene. I know what I got to do there. And go to the next scene. Just to think. And at the end, you can almost move scenes around too, which is something so important. How you tell a story. You know, sometimes like I I always give that example. One of my favorite films at the time was ID4, Independence Day. And I actually met with that director Roland Emmerich and whatever. I don't even try to pitch him one of my ideas later. But originally in that movie, the opening scene was the moon where a shadow comes over the moon and goes over the flag of the astronauts. And the shadow is a shadow of a UFO. So in the literally opening scene, they gave away the entire movie. So when they cut it, they, they swatched it. Somebody was smart enough to say, that scene's got to go. Because that's ridiculous. You're telling people, it's like... The other movie that I was actually involved with, Cowboys and Aliens. How can you watch a movie where the title tells you what it's about? It's like saying, who done it? It was Jay. It's like, you're never going to watch that movie. It's like, that's why that movie didn't do too well. Cowboys and Aliens, what is it about? I don't know. Let's go watch what it's about. I mean, so it's like, you've got to know how to tell the story. And one thing I've learned is, once the intrigue goes out of the story, it's not exciting. It's kind of like a relationship. Once your partner knows everything about you, it's not that good. Stay slightly mysterious. That's the key in life. And the same with your story. Don't try to explain everything. Let the audience come to those conclusions. They might be different than yours, but just create the thought. And I think that's the important thing as writers. Provoke thought. Because that's our challenge. It's not your job to make him understand. He's got to come to that conclusion by or herself. You just got to provoke the thought and provoke the emotion and the thought. Look, emotion. Emotion. So it comes from energy into motion. Emotion. And it is emotion. If you sit a certain way, you will feel it. If you put your chest back, head up, you'll feel different. It's the motion creates the feeling within. You have to do that. So um, did I answer your question? I don't know. Oh, so anyway, I just sat down. I sat down. I set myself a period of time, and I just knocked out the first draft. Then I went and sought other professionals, let them read it. In fact, I made mistakes. I went to my first, uh, oh, that's, that's what you asked me. I was lucky. I had a friend who his father was a very famous agent at ICM, Jack Gelardi, who was the agent to Jean-Claude Van Damme, funny enough. <laughs> and um, 
His son worked at the production company for Howard Baldwin, who owned Pets Penguins at the time. He was a, it was a, a company. And so they were looking at things. So I called him. I said, look, I wrote a script. Can I come and pitch it? I didn't even written, I just written a page. I went in, I pitched him. They loved it. They said, we want to buy this treatment from you. I said, no, I want to write it. He said, you're not a writer. I said, let me just write it just once. You know, he says, well, we want to option this. So they gave me $7,500 that day for that one page just to hold on to it. That's how good it was, the idea. And back then, high-concept stories were in. And I tell you, one other thing I did that was very smart. At the time, the writer that's behind me right here, Graham Hancock, was one of the world's leading archaeologists and investigative reporters. And he was writing about all these mysterious earth phenomenons. By chance, he happened to be in LA. And my wife found that out because I heard it on her radio. Back then, there was no social media, none of this stuff. I heard on the radio it was going to be in. So I wore my suit. It was like a scene out of Oliver Twist. I went to the meeting. There was hundreds of people sitting down before the lecture. He was fiddling around with his notes. I got up. My, my wife says, go now. I said, are you crazy? He's about to start his lecture. He goes, if you don't go now, you will never have this opportunity again. I have to tell you, behind every successful man is an exhausted, smart woman. But anyway, she pushed me. I got up. I walked to the front. And it was literally like a scene out because he was looking at his notes. Suddenly, he looked up. And there's a guy standing in front of him. He goes, excuse me? Uh, and I had to speak quickly. I said, Graham, I'm a screenwriter from Hollywood. I've written a script regarding your research. I need to speak to you. Just like that. Like a maniac. And everybody's looking at me. And he goes, wait for me at the end of the lecture. I said, so I walk back and everybody's looking at me as I'm going back like, what the hell is this guy, you know? So that move, I waited. He couldn't see me at the dinner, but he came to me and goes, here's my number, call me at my hotel tomorrow. I went to his hotel, I had lunch with him and his wife. Then I invited him to my house. He came to my house. He became my creative advisor. So that added a lot of weight to my script suddenly. Because this guy had sold 5 million copies of just this book in Japan. He was world celebrity. He became my friend. And he liked my story, what I, how I twisted his factual stuff. And so he started working with me. And he, he wasn't too happy about all the killing I had in the script. But I explained to him that it's action adventure. We needed it. Because <laughs> so, he was a very spiritual guy. He wanted to tell a much more of a small thing. So that's really the answer to you. It's like, tr that's why I said to you earlier, networking. The people you meet now, even in your classes. How do you know one of these people now in Five years, 10 years is not going to be a, a famous producer or an agent or whatever. I give an example. One of my friends in 1990 was Steve Levinson. Look him up. He's now Mark Wahlberg's producing partner and manager. And he's got shows like uh, Mad Men, uh, Ballers, uh, Entourage on HBO. I mean, he's everywhere. He's one of the most happening people. This guy was like my buddy. He was actually my manager for the first few years of my career. But the conflict with my wife didn't work because my wife was also an agent. So it just didn't quite work. So they didn't work well together. But on hindsight, that was one of the biggest losses of my career, losing him as a manager. Because if I stayed with him, who knows where I would have been now. We're still friends. So 
Keep those relationships and develop however you can. It's vital for your success as a writer. You need to, and you have a good script. Don't show it till it's ready. Remember that. Don't show it. Don't, don't be too eager to show it to everyone. I've made those mistakes too. And then pieces of my script ended up in every movie for the next two years I watched. Oh, no. Trust me. Oh, my gosh. Especially stuff that was unique. I'd come up with clever stuff. I gave it to a screenwriter. He read it. He took the best part of my script. Two years later, I saw a script he written. All of those elements was in his movie. You can't control that. So, but, hey, that's how you learn. So you got to, like, get your spec script and sit on it till it's, you got the right people and, and make sure you hand it over with a cover letter with, with some record of who you're showing it, who kept it. That's very vital, who you show it to. Don't just send it out everywhere randomly. I, I want to take a moment, Jake. This is so valuable, and we're all so grateful for your energy and your stories and just who you are and what you've brought to us on this call. And for those of you um, who don't know, I, I said this in the chat, and I just want to make sure we have a moment um, to share that Jay has an online academy. It's a fitness academy. It's a Jay Tavre Academy, but it's so much more than fitness. He shares mindset and spirituality and takes you through this massive, massive, beautiful three-month program to get you into the like best shape of your life spiritually and mentally and physically in every way. And like now is that perfect time because like so many of us are at home and looking for that like, oh my gosh, how do I even stay connected to anything positive? So you guys can go there. It's at jtaveracademy.com. He's giving an amazing deal on it right now. What is it, Jay? It's like usually 300 bucks or something. Now it's $35 or something ridiculous. Under 40 bucks. It's under 40 bucks. So if you want to just like absorb all of his amazing uh, inspiration, go sign up and benefit from that. He put a lot of energy into creating that and it's really spectacular. My, my other philosophy is that when you're healthy, your mind is just sharper. You know, I mean, you mustn't forget that. Writers by nature tend to just sit around all day. And, and they always even say it. Because I'm a writer. You know, they, the guys always have beard, long hair. They don't care. They sit there. Their one exercise is going to the fridge when they get a writer's block. And I always say, that's not the way. You know, if you really want to be creative and fresh, you need to keep this, the, the, the sacred machine, which I refer to the body, in tip-top condition. That makes you sharper, makes your brain work better too so take the only the, person i've spoken to during covid who's like well i'm in the best shape of my life <laughs> yeah i mean i'm for me there's no no not no gym means nothing it's like i just need two by two space you can work out you know you can sit here just do this and you're working your abs while you're driving you know so there's so many ways you can it's all about the mind muscle connection and that's really what life is about you have to connect to everything you do and so you can't just go through the motions. When I see in the gym, people just sit on the machine going through motion. And it, it does something, but it's not really exercise. You want to connect, slow it down, feel that muscle, whatever. It's either pulling or pushing, you know, but what it does to your body is much more than that. You know, when you actually resistance strain your glands, your major glands secrete their good stuff. You know, growth hormone, pituitary, all of that is secreted when you actually stress the body to the right amount of resistance training, you know, which for women is vital because as your bones get brittle when you get older, as you lose muscle, whatever, resistance training is what will keep your shape, will literally keep you young. 
I can't emphasize that. That's, that's the secret to staying young. Do resistance training. Whether it's bands, your own body weight, with weights. You need to work. We live in a gravity-filled planet. We need resistance training. You can't just do cardio. You know, women love running, but running alone would actually is detrimental to a woman's figure and, and health. I would say, I always say to my female friends, run five miles and do fat like short, change pace, run up a hill, do different things. Don't just run five miles at the same pace. That's, that does something for you, but it's much more beneficial if you actually change pace and uh, change your cardiac rhythms. Thank you for sharing that. Um, we're going to take one last question from Sabrina. Sabrina, feel free to unmute yourself and dive in with Jay. Hi, everybody. Um, so I'm actually, I'm really happy that you mentioned Lozen because I'm developing a uh, feature about Hecate or Hecate, which was a Greek goddess for people that don't know that actually has reigns over the underworld, earth, and um, I guess heaven is a way of saying it. Um, is and the, I, part of the moon too, Hecate? Yeah, she has like the moon. She has, she was um, like a Greek goddess that she helped fight against, think against the Trojans. I'm still doing a lot of research. Um, but she's very much erased from Greek mythology. Um, so I, my question for you is from a screenwriting standpoint um, with doing research, um, what are some good ways to find spiritual things like transfer into writing? Or let me rephrase that. Um, what kind of, where, it, what are some good outlets for um, developing spiritual ideas that are kind of like these characters are much more hu beyond human. There's, you know, spirits and stuff. So I'm very curious to see if you have any suggestions on um, what to read or, you know, some research topics, anything like that. She is in Macbeth. She is. She's referenced. I saw that comment. Um, so I'm just curious to see if you have any sort any um, resources that you would like to share. Well, if you think about it, the, the human experience, I feel like we have higher emotions and the lower emotions. Unfortunately, most of us dwell in the lower emotions and the vibration of lower emotions is different than, than for example, anger, jealousy, envy, hatred, all of that is a different vibrational frequency than love, compassion, you know, um, when you're generous, when you're, you know, th those things just naturally has a different thing. And I think in movies, if you think about moments that are tear jerkers and um, which are vital for, for a great script, it's like, uh, like that moment I just had with all of you when I was talking about the, the light within or whatever. Even I got emotional saying it. Why? Because we all are capable of spirituality. We are spiritual beings. It's just we get blocked with all the interference of life. So the key to being spiritual, always go back to your own natural stuff. You know, it's the love of a mother. She sacrifices herself so her child lives. It's a father who doesn't want his son to go to war. So he fakes an idea or whatever and does something, you know, like find those things that is just, it's innate in all of us. We do it to protect our loved ones. We do it because we don't want them to suffer. We rather we suffer than them. And it's always when you are the hero, you know, the hero is willing to die for others, you know, and that's, that's really something worth thinking about, you know, like it, it, you can draw so much from that, you know, like, 
like like our healthcare workers, you know, these doctors and nurses, what they've done the last four or five months is incredible. I wouldn't do it. I'm sorry, but it's 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 so scary what they do to be in an atmosphere with all of this gear, claustrophobic, and you go home, you don't even know if you're gonna get your family. I have a friend who's a nurse in New York. She called me sometimes daily to get advice from me, like a like a spiritual advice sometimes because she was this close to breakdowns and she didn't know what to do. And so I kept it going. I said, look, you're part of history. One day you will look back and you were the saviors of this moment. You are like the GIs of the world war. I mean, there's no other way of explaining. You are like, you are the true heroes here. You are the Avengers, you know? So they're saving the world. So I guess, you know, just look at whatever story you want to tell. Look at the, the sacrifice in there. Look at the higher emotions that are displayed. And, uh, and they're always there. There's always something somewhere there, you know? I mean, even in George Floyd's death, if you think about it, why that moment was so powerful, why that moment was so symbolic, because we all watched an innocent man get snuffed out. It was a snuff movie. It really was a snuff movie. We watched someone die on camera while everybody just waited there, you know? And, uh, and that's the crime in our, in our world now, that because someone is wearing a uniform and we clearly can see that they're doing something wrong, we can't interfere, you know? And, and it's like we become these passive people where in any culture, you know, we should have tackled that guy off his neck. I don't care you go to jail, but you tackle that guy off his neck, you know, pull his ass off him, you know? But I've had European friends write me, say, why do they do that? I go, well, because in our country, if you try to stop a police in the middle of the arrest procedure, you're either going to get shot, arrested, or tased yourself. So forget about attacking those cops. And it wasn't one, it was four of them. So it's like, you know, it's not much that anybody could do. People did say, hey, hey, check him, you know, but they couldn't do anything physically. So always try to, like, find those moments and, 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 and see if you can, you know, like, it's, it's hard when you talk about spirituality. It's like them, it's... It's like the word God. The moment you start to talk about it, you lose it. And spirituality is one of those elusive things too. It's like you have to walk a very fine line. You can't make it hokey. You have to show it in a way like I give you. I can only talk movie language, and you understand. You all probably seen Dances with Wolves, okay? There was a lot of those moments in there because Costner, although it was his first movie, he was brilliant storyteller. And one of the first moments was when they're sitting in the trenches at the beginning of the movie is when he realizes his foot is about to get gangrene and he's going to die and they're going to cut his foot off. He puts his boots back on. He gets on that horse and he goes and rides across the enemy lines and then he puts his hands out like this and he closes his eyes and he dares them to shoot him and he rides across and they all go, come on, yeah. And they'll start firing at him, like trying to shoot. And somehow the great spirit protects him and he rides right across. And when his own side sees that moment, they get inspired. They're like, Wah! and they start charging. And because of that, the colonel goes, give him the best medic. Do not cut his leg off, save his ass. This man needs to live. Now that moment gets me here every time. 
because he just doesn't give a shit anymore. Or even if he does, he doesn't care. He wants to do it for his, and he just opens himself up. It's the moment in Braveheart when he goes, freedom, as they pull out his guts. I can go on and on. It's those moments you have to hit. It's the moment in Braveheart when the young girl that he's given a flower to as a child, later on he comes back as an adult and she comes to him and she puts something in his hand and runs away. And as she goes indoors and it's raining, he opens his hand, is that flower from 20 years ago dried in a piece of cloth. She's kept it all those years. Those are the moments you gotta hit. Those are the spiritualities, the setup and payback. You know, and great directors, great writers can hit those moments. They can bring the thing into a, a motion because it's motion picture. You have to show it. You can't say that. You have to show it. And there's something magical about us. When humans see that, they get it. You get it instantly. We all have that ability. You don't, no one has to explain it to you what that means. You feel it in your gut. You feel it in your heart. You get that wow moment. Look what he just did, you know? It's, so go to self-sacrifice, self, you know, overlooking your own life for the others, being a hero, being the, the mother who cares beyond, or being the, the, the leader, the colonel, or the, the captain who goes down with the ship or gets everybody else out. Those are the moments building up to that moment. But of course, you have to make the characters, people care about them enough that when that moment comes, they... They get it. In Costner's case, that scene established who he was. Right away, you felt like this is no ordinary white man. You know, this is someone who is going to go. And that's why the natives, when the Lakotas met him, they said, who is this guy? How does he dare to live alone in this camp by himself? That's why Grant Green's character goes, we have to go meet this man. I believe he's an important man. He's, you know, we got to go meet him. we got to go find out who he is that he does this. So anyway... Yay! You are so amazing. Thank you so much for taking your time with us and your incredible feminist spirit. And I want everybody to unmute yourselves and just be you like, know, let's, let's give them a round of applause. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. 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 Thank Thank you My so pleasure. much. I enjoyed yeah. it too. I enjoyed sharing. Yay. All right. Well, we'll talk soon. Thanks, everybody. Have Cheers, a great day. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, Thanks. just my name on Instagram. Jay Tavare on Twitter, on Instagram, yeah. and jtavareacademy.com if you want to go take advantage of spending more time with them and getting started. Yeah, and I have my page. My Facebook page is open. I have tons of videos on health, nutrition, and fitness there. I used to do lots of uh, Facebook Lives, all under my videos. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training as well as a free special report, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.